Thank you for downloading this episode of the Football Purist Podcast. Please help by subscribing and check out footballpurist.com. It's the tale of two drastically different clubs with drastically different fortunes at the moment. Still, Reds find it hard to eke out a result at Old Trafford, so here we are. Welcome to another episode of the Talk On Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Hallett, as we preview Manchester United at the weekend. And as has become a weekly tradition, I'm joined by our chief editor, John O'Sullivan, fresh off holiday and his own international break. How are you, man? Very well, Jeff. Thanks for having me on again. Yeah, uh, refreshed after a nice trip to South of Italy during the international break. I'm like uh, Joel Matip. I kind of abstain from international football, and it's served me well in the long run. Um, hopefully Liverpool will reward me with a contract, just like they did Matip today. But yeah, very well. Looking forward to this game of the weekend. Served you well for every part but the shins. Uh, yeah, I'm quite sallow as Irishman go, but this time I actually unfortunately got a little bit of burn, which I wear skinny jeans, so it's been quite uncomfortable. <laughs> All right, there's a lot to get into there, so we'll just put that on pause and let's get into this match because there's just a lot going on in the run-up to it. So first, to look at the form of both teams, United come in having won two, drawn three, lost three. Good for 12th place in Premier League with a plus one in goal differential. Good for nine points, which puts them just a whopping two above Everton sitting in 18th relegation zone. It's a good situation for Liverpool supporters always. And then looking at United specifically, their last five in the league, they've gone one win, one draw, three losses. Lost to Newcastle away, drew Arsenal at home, lost to West Ham away, beat Leicester barely like we did at home, and lost to Palace at home, 2-1. <laughs> and then their last five in the league at Old Trafford, because that's always important. You'll find out in a second. They've won two, drawn two, lost only once. So they drew Arsenal, as we mentioned. They drew Rockdale in the Carabao Cup of all prestigious competitions believe even that one had to be decided by pens. They beat Leicester, lost to Palace, and smoked Chelsea in the first game of the season, which was sort of misleading. It's Lampard's first match in charge, at least in a league match. And then let's contrast that with the last five for Liverpool. This is the fun part. They've gone a perfect 5-0-0. They beat Leicester at home with the late penalty. Barely squeaked away from that one, kind of like United, sounds like. Beat Sheffield away 1-0. Beat Chelsea away, importantly, with Trent Screamer. Beat Newcastle at home and then Burnley away. So now to sober us up a little bit, our form in the series, head-to-head over the last five that we played. The last five at Anfield, Liverpool have gone one win, two draws, two losses. That's at home. And thanks to Shaq for... That one win. It's the last one. And then our last five at Old Trafford gets even worse. No wins. Two draws. Three losses. This is obviously what gives John Maylock's moments. Our record of late is straight awful. If you're Klopp, 
what what are you telling the guys at Melwood? I think what I would tell them is to remember yourselves. You're European champions, and this is a team who, since their victory over Paris Saint-Germain last year, have basically been in relegation form. So let's not have a scenario like last season where perhaps we showed too much respect to a team that didn't deserve your respect. So just remember who you are and come correct. Act like you're the European champions because you are, and you are a merit, and you're on the cusp of breaking an all-time Premier League record for consecutive wins. So let's not fall into the trap of playing the occasion, just play the team. And if you do play the team rather than the occasion, you're better than them. So logically, you should win. So looking at United the club, Ole's been at the wheel. And we love to say it, and we hope it continues, but it seems to be running short. His record last year when he took over to his record this year, Set against his record at Cardiff and record in the Norwegian leagues, it all looks the same. It is the same coach, lack of strategy, lack of uh, attacking threat, and yet another manager that doesn't really know how to use Paul Pogba. <laughs> By leaps and bounds, they're the best player in the squad. It's it's a mess, but it's just, you know, as, as underqualified as Solskjaer is, and believe me, he is... He's a sacked manager of Cardiff. He ba- he barely made any waves in Norway with one of the biggest clubs in Molde. So as much as he is underperformed, I think the elephant in the room is really their recruitment. And that really stems from the owners through Ed Woodward. I don't think the priority of that football club is football. I think the priority is, you know, generating money, is marketing and is the commercial side. Um, if you contrast that to Liverpool, as much as Liverpool are in high court today to try and broker an agreement to get released from their new their new balance contract to uh, you know to put to put in their lot with Nike, I think the priority is football. In fact, in a recent interview, Klopp was asked how he'd react to a scenario where there was an all or nothing Amazon style documentary on Liverpool like there was with being Liverpool in Brendan Rodgers' first season, he said that would be his last day at the club. So I think that encapsulates the contrast between both clubs' attitudes. Liverpool is about the football. United is about the commercial side. And the success on the pitch in the last couple of years, you know, is is the fruit of that. There are plenty of rumors bringing Allegri back with all the success he had with Pogba back at Juve finally finding a purpose for him, right? Like, if this, this seems to be the most logical move if you're going to bounce Ole off that wheel. Sure. Uh, I think he's probably the best realistic candidate on the market right now, assuming no one is going to leave their job mid-season for United. So, yeah, I, I think he would be the best candidate unless they got someone in the interim, like there were suggestions of Mary Lauren Blanc, and then to see if they get Pochettino at the end of the season. But certainly, if they were to act now, I think Allegri would be as good as they could get. But he can only do so much. I mean, the squad is terribly, terribly unbalanced. Um, there's a distinct lack of goals. And there's a distinct lack of creativity by Pogba. But I would never, ever, ever put my hat on Pogba, you know, being the main component of a team. Because he is much too flaky to, you know, build around They've, they've tried it for years with different coaches, with different strategies, with different players. And invariably, he's just the same inconsistent player that he was when they signed him. With just next level athletic ability. And that's obviously what brought him to United and has had him on the pitch as long as he's been. 
So sure, he's he's brilliant, but it's just a consistency factor. I mean, he can be brilliant for ten minutes and then anonymous for eighty. You know, it's. I think I think like aesthetically, he's this brilliant player, but you know, it's he doesn't tie together ninety minutes often enough for like he should because he is brilliant, like you mentioned, technically, physically, all of these things. And then we get to the root of United's ills, which goes back several years and most pointedly in the last couple. So still in 2019, no director of football at United, no philosophy for the kind of players they bring in. The players they transfer in for the first team have largely been celebrity home run hits, you know, Hail Marys, if you will. They borrow the Glazers, NFL parlance. It's a rough time to be United, and for that lack of alignment, it's just guaranteeing more of this in the future, isn't it? Yeah, I think the most important thing in any football club is synergy and everyone pulling in the same direction. But that doesn't exist at United. I mean, their ostensible director of football is Ed Woodward, who is a good businessman and a good commercial director, but he hasn't a scooby about football. Whereas contrast that with Liverpool, it's more streamlined. You have like Michael Hogan, or Billy Hogan rather, who is doing all the commercial side for Liverpool. And then you have Michael Edwards, who not only is an ex-professional footballer, okay, he didn't play to a great level, but he has an understanding of the game. He also has business degrees. Then you have people like Ian Graham, who has like a PhD in, in, some, kind of, uh, in some kind of science. So these are all really intelligent people who understand analytics and who understand business, but crucially understand football and they marry it all together. There's no sense of oneness that United, I mean, their owners are just worried about making money. They don't care about winning because if they did, they would clearly make the requisite changes, but they haven't. Think back to the Moneyball days that sort of revolutionized professional sports and how that's cascaded down in various forms to different leagues. And FSG, with all their experience of Bill James and the Red Sox, you knew from the moment they took ownership of the club that they would head down a similar path. And I, I think they've got it exactly right. The mix between investment, finding diamonds in the rough, missing essentially great prospects that others have passed over to net a slot, to net a money. I mean, Virgil was tops of any chart, but like a lot of great players not valued anywhere near what they're valued now because of finding these, these unique opportunities. Yeah, and they deserve so much credit because you mentioned Moneyball. Well, Billy Bean actually has like a consultancy role with Arsenal, but you know, their transfer record has been wretched in recent times. So it's like FSG have taken certain ideas from that concept of Moneyball, but then they've added new ideas and they've added new people into the equation. And, you know, I don't think any club in world football has been as good as Liverpool in the market in the last maybe three or four years. And that's, you know, that's testament to the foundations that they've, they've put in place. And according to some journalists who are close to the club, it doesn't look like uh, it shows any signs of abating. Apparently, they were blown, blown away by the statistical analysis and the technology and the people they have uh, behind the scenes in terms of player identification. So hopefully we have an era of Liverpool just really ruling the transfer market. The pervasiveness of analytics in the game is more a change in thinking than it is like a set of tactics. And I think at Arsenal with the, you mentioned the, the Billy Bean consultancy, Billy Bean has done that with a number of major league clubs in the U S 
you can't just copy. You have to change your thinking. You have to be like data first, opinion second. You need to be, you know, really strong in analytics to be able to notice the diamond in the rough. And I don't think clearly United haven't picked that up. And that's just the gap that we're going to see remain going forward. Oh, they're light years behind Liverpool. I mean, it's genuinely like they do their signings based off what some pundit on match of the day said about a certain player. Again, it, it just seems like they take shortcuts and they're lazy. They don't do proper due diligence. Where I listened to a podcast yesterday with Ian Graham, who was like Liverpool's head of uh, recruitment. And he, he holds a PhD from Cambridge in some kind of a, I, I forget the field of science, but it's very highfalutin science, basically. <laughs> Nearly something to do with like what they do at NASA. But essentially, he said they have in-depth data on 20,000 players all over Europe and all over the world. And the way some of the algorithms they use and some of the science they use is like way, way above my head. But suffice to say, it works and it works quite well. And I think an encouraging thing was he talked about Klopp and how Klopp was not reticent to hearing these things because he says that's what makes Klopp out as one of the best in the world. He said he's in the top 5% of coaches and obviously he's higher than that. But he said it's because he wasn't afraid to have his view challenged. And the example of this was Salah. Initially, Klopp didn't want Salah. But, you know, they they worked on it. And he was a big enough man, you know, to put his ego to one side and, you know, to rubber stamp the signing. And the rest is history, as they say. Yeah, think about that with a world-class coach coming in with lots of tro- trophies, lots of accomplishments, ideal fit for Liverpool and you know, let's be honest, he was taking a risk coming to Liverpool. Liverpool needed him far more than he needed Liverpool. He could have had any club in the world at that point. His mental plasticity of a world-class manager at that point in his career, I, I know it's part of what makes managers world-class, but I think Klopp is on a different level, being able to think non-linearly about what it takes to be successful in the game and to challenge like sacred cows of assumptions. Yeah, he's just, it's its amazing how, he, he's like a company man, but at the same time, he, he has his own voice and he's strong in his convictions. So it's like this perfect balance. He he doesn't talk out of the shop like Mourinho did, like we mentioned earlier, when he wasn't necessarily getting signings. He used the press to vent a lot of his frustrations, but Klopp puts the club first and it's just been a beautiful, beautiful marriage. And, you know, hopefully... Hopefully he climbs that mountain of winning the Premier League, which we've never seen, and then he'll go down as an all-time club legend. But that's because of the structure that's in place in the club and him. It's, there's a good like symbiotic relationship. Whereas, like we said, United, there's none of that. It's just a mess. It's just throw money, throw money, throw money. It's like throwing shit against the wall. Some, some of it will stick. So that's basically what their, that's what their practice is. It's scattergun. It's just... You know, it's like it's like carpet bombing things with money, and then hopefully it'll turn out all right. But then there'll be a lot of collateral damage, which there has been. So, what a perfect segue getting into how United are coming into this and looking at how they'll set up. <laughs> uh, so versus Newcastle, they're going in this four-two-three-one that I don't think suits their eleven and the players, the talent they have. But they're rolling with injuries, at least as far as we know. Rashford sitting in the nine when he's better on the wing, at least in my opinion. Uh, you've got Daniel James from the academy. Uh, he's had a good run of games. <clears throat> sitting next to Mata, usually, in the middle. And 
Like Monta's great, but I don't know if he's the best player in that like tennis role. And then, you know, Pereira on the right, which is great talent, but still coming up. Um, so, and then you've got the back line of young Maguire and then some combination. It's either Lindelof or the kid, uh, Tuanze Bay, if I'm yeah, Tuanze Bay, right. yeah. Tuanze Bay, thank you. Yeah, and then Dalit that the Dalit that went down in the last match, so likely set up. I'm, I'm seeing. I don't know if he'll roll the dice with Pogba, get him on the field, put him next to McTominay, uh, because Scott's been a mainstay in that midfield. Um, I don't know if you have any other options in the attacking roles. You know, with Martial out, uh, Lingard out, and then if you're to believe it, De Gea. Yeah, I think you preface that nicely with uh, "if you believe it," because yeah, <laughs> uh, I'm very cynical about red herrings being spread around um, around the media like that. Um, he was saying, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer was saying that you know Martial might have a chance to be available for half an hour. And the talk was that Pogba and De Gea will both miss it. Um, in the case of Pogba, that remains to be seen. But additionally, I don't think really that Liverpool's preparation will be any way affected by what United say because they're the better team, so should they just focus on themselves. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they do seem to have quite a few injuries, and that was the same as last season. But again, last season it didn't really you know, help Liverpool manufacture a win, so... They were they were literally falling on the pitch, and it didn't help. So yeah, one of the weirdest matches I've seen. Like, really, we can't can't do anything with that. It goes to show though how difficult it is to coach a pressing side of the game because that was a big tenant of Solskjaer when he came in was that he wanted them to maybe kind of replicate what Liverpool were doing, play high intensity, high pressing game, and they got so many muscle injuries. Yeah, he was just he was running the shit out of his players at training, whereas you know there's a better way to do this. And comparatively, Liverpool get very few injuries because obviously they have a really good backroom team looking after them and Klopp knows how to coach these things in the correct way. Yeah, it, it deserves a mention how far we've come with uh, with the physios and the data they're taking in because everybody's running around with sensors. And like injury spells, yeah, you get the Gomez broken leg or, or whatever it, it takes longer. It seems like they, they take enough time without rushing people back and it leads to hopefully less recurring injuries. I think Jordan Henderson is probably the best example of this, right? Oh, he's literally never injured and he's been nursing a chronic injury for years, but he's very rarely injured the same as Salah, but like the depth that Liverpool go to to try and improve these things is massive. Uh, they got a German swimmer in who has made this like special isotonic drink that uh, he produced for an American swimmer and she hadn't swam in 25 years. And after like using this drink for a prolonged period of time, she broke the record that she made 25 years earlier. So they have uh, Mona Nemmer who was like, I don't want to call her a chef, but she was basically the head of, I, at one time of Bayern Munich of, you know, making the players regimes in terms of food and all of these little things really have uh, seemed to really coalesce and add to what's a squad that you know very rarely picks up injuries outside of a scenario where they get fouled like Keita 
by Rakitic in the Champions League or like Gomez getting his leg broken. There's very rarely like muscle injuries or anything that you associate with the players being overtrained. Or just incapable in Sturridge's case. I feel bad about saying yeah. that, but yeah. Poor guy, or Oxlade-Chamberlain. I mean, that was just horrendous. Though. Yeah, a total freak accident. Uh, yeah, for it can player, happen. player that was playing so well. So, okay, we're, we're getting into the fun part, which is talking about our Reds and how they match up. And R11 has been pretty constant. Uh, changing that happens is always in the midfield. Uh, and I think we've gotten over the chopping and changing uh, with Trent and with <laughs> Robertson or, or wherever in the back line. I guess the question is, what gambles does Klopp roll with? What are you seeing? Okay, so is Alice is bringing Allison back in after not having played since the mid of August a gamble? Um, we're not privy to how he's looked in training, but if he's looked well in training, I don't think it's too much of a gamble. But if he, you know, if he's looked maybe a little bit shaky and ring rusty, which would be entirely natural, then I would have no hesitation in picking Adrian because largely he's been very, very good and I think better than anybody could have anticipated when we signed him. So I think that could be one gamble. And then another one, I wouldn't necessarily call it a gamble from my perspective, but possibly from Klopp's perspective, a gamble could be picking either Oxide chamberlain or Keita as the third infielder because I can pretty much guarantee that both Fabinho and Wijnaldum will start. So it's a case of who will pick as the attacking trust midfielder. I think if it came down to it, it would probably be Keita over Oxide chamberlain but, you know, he might just go nuclear and pick one of Henderson or Milner, which is probably more yeah. likely yeah. Than, than both of them. Exactly. He, he seems to loathe the, the rolling of the dice and goes for experience over, you know, creative threat, <laughs> which makes us sort of gnash our teeth. And, you know, that kind of reminds you of the a couple players, you know, one that helped us win the last match I mentioned earlier in Shaq. And you've got the you know notorious at this point Nabi Keita, who hasn't really seen any meaningful minutes since that that scissor tackle uh, from Rakitic at Barcelona away. Let's let's like get into that for a second. Like I know we tried to space this out to keep the depression at bay, but these are two great players. One of whom actually delivered you a win in the last one. Why aren't they seeing the pitch? I mean, you've got, you know, Shaq obviously with the calf, but there's been rumors about his work rate. And that, I think, goes more to his history at Bayern and um, before Inter, right, for a little bit. Yep. What, do you, what do you make of his situation? I mean, Klopp has never specifically said it because he's not one to do that. And I admire that because you don't hang your players out to dry in public. I don't think there's any benefit in 2019 to doing that. And that's mainly one of the main reasons why Mourinho couldn't get a tune out of his squad, I feel. I don't think really you should put your players on blast or throw them under the bus in a public setting. But you, one of the only times that Klopp um, has kind of started Shakiri in a deeper role was against Southampton at home at the beginning of last season. And it's again, Liverpool won 3-0 and uh, Shakiri actually played quite well in it, but he was substituted at halftime for Milner. And... Um, when asked why he done that, Klopp's response was that he wanted more solidity. So reading between the lines, I don't think that he trusts Shakiri from a defensive or a work rate 
work rate perspective. And then you have the perma-durable Salah, who never gets injured. So that's that's like one less player, that, that's one less spot, rather, that Shakiri can play in. And then since maybe January of last year, given that when Fabinho settled, Liverpool kind of reverted back to a 4-3-3, which means there was no real number 10 slot available for him. So I just think a lot of things have worked, you know, to his disadvantage. But uh, like you said, I think he's a wonderful, wonderful player technically. Uh, and he offers something different, I think, something different that Liverpool don't necessarily have outside of him, like that player that's comfortable in that kind of space between between the centre circle and maybe the opposition box. He's very good in those spaces. So, And he's very, he's very incisive with his passing and he's very brave with it. So I think... He's an element in a lot of games you say that Liverpool would miss, but you know, they just keep on winning. So as far as Klopp is concerned, it's it's justified, but it's certainly someone that I'd like to see more. But to finish my long-winded uh, statement, I think that primarily the reason he doesn't play that often is from a defensive perspective. And it might necessarily be laziness. I think it might just be a tactical, you know, misunderstanding of what, what's required from him. And then there's the nabby. It's like the the nagging nabby that we've been just dry humping for the better part of what two years at this point. Like yeah, <laughs> between the transfer and the waiting, and here yeah. he comes, and you just know his talent, all the skills he has in his locker, and an, another case of we're almost to Christmas and we haven't seen a minute from him. Yeah, and, um, he, and he had such good runs of form last year. It's just very very annoying. That's the pity. And I think it's just because just his style of play, he's not, he's very slight, but he's such a good dribbler. So, so, such a good low center of gravity, so agile. And that, you know, will lead to a lot of fouls. I mean, I don't know how Rakitic shouldn't get sent off for that foul. And then, come on. Yeah, to compound it, he goes to the African Cup of Nations where he's clearly not fit. And Guinea's manager, whose name is nearly entirely like Paul Pot who was a, a, a Cambodian dictator, yeah. uh, plays him through injury on some of the worst pitches you will ever see in professional football against teams who were just content to kick the shit out of them. I think one of the games was Nigeria, and they just booted him from minute one through to minute 90. So it, he's just, it was terrible management, terrible, terrible management. And in these scenarios, it's the national team who have the sway. Liverpool can't hold them back from these things, unfortunately. So... I think if they had their way, they wouldn't have let him go. So in many ways, he's been unlucky because, like you mentioned, he's had good runs of form. Before that injury in the new Camp, that's the Champions League semi-final. You know, he was entrusted to play and he was actually quite good. He played well at home to Chelsea in the title run in last season. He played well at home to Porto in the Champions League quarterfinal. He played well against Huddersfield. He was putting together a lot of performances and, you know, it started to look like the penny had dropped from a tactical perspective. He was doing, you know, a lot of more defensive work as, as well as, you know, what his trademark kind of dribbling and slaloming style. But he's just been unlucky. I don't think it's it's necessarily anything more than that. Looking into next year, I I really think nineteen twenty is like put up or shut up time for perhaps both players. I think doesn't Shaq's deal run out in the summer? Um, I think there's one more year after, but one I more. certainly don't see Shakiri being at Liverpool by the end of the next summer transfer window. Yeah, given given the issues we just discussed, but 
Nabby <clears throat> plays best, I, I think, in a four-two-three-one. You know, did quite a bit of that at uh, at Leipzig, and it's Klopp's preferred setup. But you've got Gruich having a hell of a season at, at Hertha Berlin coming in next year. It seems pretty certain he's going to battle significantly for the spot. So him next to Fabinho might be interesting, but you, you run out of scenarios for Naby to really contribute. Yeah, I think Keita is certainly better in the midfield too. Throughout, you know, throughout his spells at both of the Red Bull clubs, Leipzig and Salzburg, he's always played in like a box midfield, a four-two-two-two. Uh, I always feel weird saying that four-two-two-two. Uh, yeah, so it's just because he's so agile, he can cover ground so quickly, like an Golo Kante. That when you play a two-man midfield with him, you don't necessarily feel like you're outnumbered just because he covers space so well. So I think that's what he's ideal at. And Klopp's default formation at Dortmund was always uh, 4-2-3-1. So it shows you really how, how adaptable he is to, to succeed at Liverpool and very, really playing a 4-3-3. Now, there isn't major differences, but still, it's, it's, it's just another indication of the fact that he can adapt to suit the players at his disposal. So I think that's another feather in his cap. But I think certainly... If Klopp had all the players available that he wanted, I think you would see him revert back maybe to a four-two-three-one, and that, I think that would suit Kate better certainly. And yeah, Grurich is an exciting prospect. I, I saw a statistic last night that statistically he's one of the best dribblers in Europe. For anyone who's made over ten dribbles, he's made Whoa. twelve dribbles this season, and all of them have been successful. And now Grurich is six foot four. Yeah, so he's, he's a monster. Exactly. Yeah, so like to have that kind of balletic grace for a man that big is like, you know, a sight to behold. And I certainly hope he continues this season in the vein that he started it and that he played in all of last year because one way or another it's going to benefit the club, whether we sell him or whether he becomes a first team member, they're certainly going to do well out of him. Yeah, I could talk all day about Gruich. I, he's also stemmed the fouls and and the red cards that were marking him in his short time with Liverpool. He's got he's got nows, and you need and you need that balanced across the squad, as we've talked about for a couple of weeks now. So, um, getting into this match, how do we see us setting up? So, our eleven versus their eleven, their injuries versus ours. Like, where do you think we're going to see joy and where do you think we're going to have problems? I think that they're actually defensively there in terms of uh, XG. They're the best team in the league this year. And now, I mean, that can be quite nebulous sometimes and people will argue about the value of it. But defensively, I don't think they've been quite as ram- as ramshackle as people expect. But, you know, they've gotten 40% of the league's penalties this year. That's been a significant... Um, that's been a significant route to goal for them. So assuming they don't get one in this game, it's 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 kind of something that they nearly had relied on. So I think the midfield really is key because I think if Liverpool's pressing is on point, United won't be able to get out. They do have a lot of pace uh, in their team up front. They have Rashford and Daniel James, both who are rapid. And I think their, their, prime, their primary tactic is probably going to be to hit long diagonals into the channels of those players. Yeah. I think if Liverpool can snuff that ball out at source in the midfield area, then eventually that United will crack under the pressure of Mane, Firmino, Salah, and you know our fullbacks. So I think if Liverpool win the midfield battle, which I expect them to, then uh, then they will prevail. But 
the question you asked is uh, who do I see, you know, lining up there? I can see it being a midfield three, and I can see two of the three being Wijnaldum and Fabinho. Now that means there's essentially four players at one spot. I'm not counting the Lana just because I'm not. So <laughs> just because you can't in this, yeah, no way. yeah. I just it would make me feel sick. So Henderson, <laughs> Milner, Keita, or Oxide Chamberlain. My own preference would be for Keita, but Klopp and perhaps he would write could be writing this would feel that you know that's not the ideal setting for his first game back this season after a lot of injuries. Yeah, but uh, who he picks in that third midfield slot will be interesting. And other than that, I don't really see, I don't really see who else could come in. Probably Allison. It depends how he's looked in training. We're obviously not privy to that. Um, whether Salah is completely fit, because if he isn't, I can see a slight rejig with a, or Riggy coming into the left and then playing Mane off the right, which is no problem because he played there for the entirety of his first season at the club really well. Played there against Leicester last time out really well. So, I think those three things will be the will be the only real question mark, and I uh, I'd imagine that both Salah and Allison are fit enough to start. So it's just a question of that third attack-minded midfielder. Because we hope for a creative option, you hope for a spark, and then it's Milner or Hendo. And all due respect to both, Milner's had some great matches, great runs of form recently. But uh, I just don't expect any like rolls of the dice there. Hope I'm wrong. Um, I hope I see at minimum Wijnaldum and Fabinho. And I, I know it's away from home, but I think Wijnaldum's riding some extraordinary confidence coming out of his team time with the national team. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I think he's Klopp's most trusted lieutenant, apart from Fabinho in midfield. Uh, Wijnaldum is a player that's very, very underrated. And it's the same reason why I believe that Fabinho, or Firmino rather, is underrated is because you can't put him into a box. You can't, there's no point of reference. Who would you compare Firmino to? You would say maybe Firmino is like a bit like Mario Mandzukic. He's a bit like Karim Benzema. But then he has the additional features that neither of these guys have. So he's a real outlier. And I think that's the same about Wijnaldum because he's genuinely good at everything. He's intelligent. He's tactically, tactically so clued in, which is a hallmark of Dutch footballers. He is physical with his massive arse. He, he's <laughs> good on the ball. The only thing really I think that's lacking from his game sometimes is self-belief. Um, we saw when he came on with an axe to grind against Barcelona in the Champions League semi-final, he was absolutely unbelievable. He terrorized them. Two goals and he had that run where he basically took the ball about 40 yards by himself, fending people off just looked so motivated and so mad. And he admitted as much after the game, saying that the fact that he wasn't starting made him really angry. So if he could only tap into that reservoir of bitterness, of, you know, of anger, you know, that Roy Keane school of I hate everybody and I'm <laughs> going to make it throw on a football pitch, then, like, we have a Ballon d'Or winner waiting for us. So I think Klopp is really appreciative of him. And obviously Fabinho then is a world-class defensive midfielder, not that Brazil seemed to have him as their first choice, which is... An absolutely outrageous call, but one as a Liverpool fan that I'm not necessarily too concerned about. Yeah, same. They play stupid friendlies in Singapore against Senegal on like a Thursday morning. So, you know, the least time you can play, you can spend playing for Brazil, the better from my perspective. So I think it's going to be one, it's going to be Fabinho, Wijnaldum plus one. And my pick would be Keita. My expectation is either Milner or Henderson. (laughs) 
<laughs> That's just the reality. We can't predict any different. That's just how Klopp tends to roll, especially when expectations are high of something different. So, okay, we, we, we understand where the problem areas are and where opportunities will be and what we need to be concerned with. Now let's get to some score predictions. And there's a couple things that I want to predict. I want to predict score, and I also want to pick red card, because we've had a few in this series. So why don't we start with, how do you see this finishing? What's, what would be your scoreline? I think Liverpool win 3-1. 3-1. Which is outrageously confident to my behalf. Yeah, it, it really, it really is. <laughs> I, mean, I just feel, yeah, we pumped you up with enthusiasm. This is good. I just feel like the dam has to burst sometime. Yeah. And like I don't know if you, if you're a person for omens, but Liverpool win at Old Trafford every five years. They won 2004, <laughs> 2009, and again 2014. And you know, I was always terrible at maths in school, but I believe it's been five years since 2014. Correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think I am. Uh, but I just think they've had so many near misses there in recent years. They've had so many undeserved losses. I even remember the 3 0 game in 2015 where Brad Jones dived the wrong way from a Mata free kick. They were <laughs> absolutely horrific in that game. And Mario Malatelli missed about five great chances. Oh, Jesus. Um, yeah, Sterling missed some great chances. I think, I think it might have been Sturridge's first game back in a long time. He missed some great chances. It was. The worst 3-0 victory you'll ever see from any team because they were absolutely shocking but still won. So I just feel like we're a due one there and we're a better team. So if the selection is right and if the mentality from the players, which I shouldn't doubt because the European champions in there, they just keep winning games, is spot on, then you know I think the natural result is for us to win. And because this isn't the Liverpool team of old, I was going to say, you know, I... Throughout red card predictions, I mean that's good good for the series with Everton usually, but I think Klopp has trained this team not to go there. I mean you don't have the Stevie ninety second mistake at the halfway line, right? Yeah, <laughs> different era. I actually, I actually can't remember the last Liverpool player to be sent off. That's that's funny. Um, yeah, generally very clean team, which again is impressive because you consider they're a team that's actively engaging teams in a pressing game. You know, they're trying to win the ball back. They're being aggressive. So that's, that's impressive levels of restraint and tactical discipline from the players. I think, though, if anyone was to be sent off, it would be Aaron Wan-Bissaka. Yeah. He, got sent, he got sent off last season for Palace against Liverpool for taking down Mane. And uh, I think he's a player that is overrated because he relies so much on tackling. And, you know, against some of our players, the likes of Salah or Mane, who have the pace, you know, to trouble anybody, I can see him diving in and potentially getting a red card. So he'd be my pick. If I was a gambling man, I'd put a few quid on him to get sent off. Yeah, that's that's 100% his game. He gets out of position and uses his pace to get back, and it's usually in the form of a tackle. So you're, you're, you're not far off there. So, okay, going into this one, we got some confidence, but plenty of reasons to keep us humble and... uh shall we say conservative. So John, thank you for joining on this listeners. Thanks for showing up and giving us a listen and up the reds. Talk on talk on. 